All right, it's good to see you. Go ahead and say, make yourself comfortable. And again, welcome to Legacy Church. It's good to have you here. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors I get to preach today. Very excited about this passage. Very excited about starting a new little series today. I've been looking forward to this for a while. But if you have a Bible or a device that you're using to read the Bible, look at a Romans 11. Romans 11 is where we're going to find ourselves today. Romans 11, verse 33, and we're just going to start off reading it And a powerful passage. I think it's going to be very helpful for you today. It's been very helpful for me. So Romans chapter 11, verse 33, this is the word of the Lord for us. I'm going to read it to you. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That's going to be our passage today because when it comes to the subject of suffering and navigating pain and carnage, which is what we're going to be looking at for the next several weeks, when it comes to that, I find this passage to be one of the most helpful for me personally, and I think it shows us Jesus very clearly which I think is also going to be very helpful for us as we look at pain and sadness. Because over the years, I know I'm no different than you. I have found myself in the middle of a lot of painful moments of loss, of being in hospital rooms and not knowing what to say, maybe being in the hospital room because of something that has happened, hearing various hard stories of carnage around us. I've been in various funerals. I've given various funerals. I've seen families destroyed. I've seen a lot of the same things that you have seen. And then I watch the news like you watch the news, right? Have you flipped it on lately? It looks like the world's coming apart almost, you know, with the hurricanes bearing down in every different direction and the carnage that comes from that. And by the way, because I've been asked a few times, I'm waiting to hear back from some of our network pastors, our Acts 29 churches in the area. We will probably take up a financial offering and then just ship it to that church and let them take care of it the best way that they see fit. But the hurricanes, I mean, one's headed right over where we used to live, right over our, our old address. We have Houston. We have the coast of Mexico with this massive earthquake. We have murders and human trafficking, we have cancer, we have all these things in a big long list, and if that long list shows us anything, it shows us that creation, our cosmos, is coming apart at the seams. It's all coming unwound, it feels like. And that's just global suffering. We have local suffering too, don't we? That's where we lose things personally. We lose friendships. Some won't come back. We lose health. Some of you have come in here, and you have a bad health report that you've carried with you. Still trying to figure out what it means for you. Still trying to figure out how to decipher it. We've lost peace. Some of us, we are suffering just because we are aging. Some of us, we are suffering just because we are single. Some of us, we're suffering because we don't know what the future holds. It's very foggy. Some of us are suffering because we just don't have any idea of what life is going to be like even next week. Some of us are suffering because we have temptations coming in every different direction. Some of us are suffering because we have done things to other people, and some of us are suffering because we've had things done to us. I mean, I don't have to convince you that suffering is real and pain is real, do I? I mean, we all limped in here with shrapnel wounds still in us from things that we have walked through in the brief time that we've been on this planet. 
just signature and the signs of pains and horrors and sadness. And yet, with all that shrapnel, we don't know what to do with any of it, do we? We don't know how to handle it. We don't even know the right questions to ask a lot of times. We feel totally inadequate to handle the pain, so we do our best to swerve around it. Or we do our best to medicate it, or reason with it, or ignore it. We do the best we can, and because we're all thumbs with it, we fumble it a lot, we're not even sure how to see God. This is why it is important for you and me to have a good working, it's imperative for us to have a good working theology on suffering and pain, okay? But even if you do, even if you have a good working definition and understanding of what pain is theologically, it still is hard to get up after you've been sucker punched, isn't it? To stagger to your feet and to just go back to normal, it's very difficult. You know, after my dad passed away a few years ago, I would have droves of people ask me, people that loved me, and people that knew the Bible, people that truly cared for me, Luke, how are you processing this pain? How are you processing everything? I'll be honest, I didn't really know how to answer that question. I didn't know how to answer what it meant like to process that kind of pain. I'd never had that kind of pain before, and I had a good theology on suffering. In fact, I'd say it was an airtight one. I had an airtight theology on suffering. I didn't hate God. I didn't go on some rampage. I loved God. I enjoyed Jesus. I loved the gospel. I trusted God. And still, I watched cancer take my dad, and I still hurt. And still today, I still am processing, I guess. Maybe some of you can resonate with that. Maybe some of you are limping still. I just didn't know if processing meant not hurting anymore, not crying anymore, smiling, forgetting it, moving on. What does it look like? But I do think that after these years, where I am still processing that pain, by the way, after all these years, I find this passage in Romans 11 pastoring my heart. It centers me a little bit, right? Because it shows this picture of a beyond God, an otherworldly God, a sovereign God, right, who is in control of everything. His thoughts are not our thoughts. You get a picture of that. His ways are not our ways. His ideas are better than our ideas. He is otherworldly. Not even pain escapes his grasp. Not even carnage goes by his eyes without him noticing. Yet, he's not just otherworldly. He's very close and he's empathetic. He's very near. And when you suffer, he suffers with you in real time. In real time. He's right there. Empathetic. I cannot outpain God, not even in my worst moments. The most horror I've ever experienced or mankind has ever experienced. They've not been able to outpace the suffering and the pain that God himself has been through. Because listen, he's not just a sovereign God, he's a suffering God. And that's gonna be important for you to remember as we go through this passage. He's not just a sovereign God, he's a suffering God. We see this just kind of hinted towards us as we see the very last verse of Romans 11. Verse 36, he says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That means even the cross. Consider that for a moment. Even the cross was handcrafted by God himself, hand-delivered and executed. For all things are from him and through him and to him. So he is sovereign, but he's also suffered. He also knows suffering. So regardless of what has been taken from you, processing your pain to the glory of God is going to land you in worship. Where we, just like Paul, say something to him, be glory forever, amen. To him be glory forever, amen. So if your view of processing pain today is medicating something 
or requiring something just to get through the day, maybe distracting yourself, maybe overworking, maybe reasoning for it, maybe just trying to ignore it, you're not processing well. If you're not worshiping God in the midst of your pain, you're still struggling like I do, I'm processing it well. How are you doing with your horrors? The shrapnel that you walked in with, how is that going for you as of this second, right? You see, I hope you've noticed after the last few weeks, I've been trying really difficult, I've been trying the hard task of steering our church into a better posture. So a few weeks ago, I talked about what a win looks like in diversity, racial diversity, socioeconomic diversity. What does a win look like? It can't just be that this room looks different. It has to be that our living rooms look different. It has to be that mission looks different, right? Discipleship must look differently. Our DNAs must look differently. And then we, we switched gears a little bit and we talked about what a Christian activist looks like. How does it look like to protest from a gospel-shaped manner? And in the middle of trying to drive our church into a better posture, one that will help this city more, we also looked at what it means to serve this city but live for another. To live for Knoxville, Tennessee, not to just be in the city, but to be for the city, but at the same time have our eyes glued on a place that God has designed and God has built for us. This is what we've done. We've worked really hard at kind of steering the church in that direction. Now, being this kind of church is going to take a lot of work. I'm devoted to the work, and it's going to be a long process, I'm sure, but I do truly believe that God is going to bring us as a people to a more helpful place for this city. I, I do think our better days are before us. Really good days. Really helpful days for the city. But in my attempt to prepare us to be a church that's a little bit more influential and helpful for the city, that means we have to know how to navigate pain because we're swimming in it. That's the cultural norm for us today, which means we need a good fluency and a good IQ for it, theologically. So when I say fluency, and we use that word a lot, we usually attach gospel to the front of it and say gospel fluency. Fluency just means being articulate in a foreign language. And I think that's a helpful word for us here because nothing is more foreign to us than suffering. It surprises us. It comes and it just shocks us. It interrupts our normal, and we don't know how to speak to it. We don't have the right words for it. We find ourselves very inarticulate. Right? I think most of what you and I know about suffering and about pain. We scoop up over the years from different puddles of people and influence. I think Disney has taught us how to look at pain, how to look at evil. I think our parents did the best they could. Our little league coach would throw a thing out there every now and then. We'd pick up some lyrics from a Taylor Swift song. We'll hear some preaching, and we just kind of throw all of that in a blender, and we mix it up really good, and we pour it out, and that becomes our best attempt at miscarriages <laughs> or an STD or a hurricane. And this is why when something significant levels you to the ground, you're not really sure what's going on and you're not even really sure what to say or how to pray or who you should talk to or how you should think or should you just move on. You know, Tim Keller wrote a real helpful book on this called Suffering. I think that's just the name of the book, Suffering. And it, if you are in the market for something like that or you're traveling through a real heavy season, that's not a bad book to start with. It's very theological and academic, but it builds a framework. And in the earlier chapters of this book, he does a really good job of showing that other world religions prepare their worshipers for things like suffering and pain. Whether you're Buddhist or Hindu, or you just, it could be Greek mythology of old times. And misguided as those religions might be, whenever pain would come, there was an immediate understanding 
for most of the worshipers on what to do, where it came from. Not so with the Western world. We're the worst at it. Western culture is, is the worst in human history at teaching its people on how to deal with pain. It might have remnants of some biblical thought, but it's usually got this thick coating of the cultural voice and it leaves us very, very unprepared. I mean, I was thinking about this when I was putting this together, praying about how I've actually witnessed people kind of bleed out loud because of something that has happened to them. It usually happens on social media. I was thinking about one person in particular, and I'm not even exaggerating, I knew that this person had gone through a significant blow. I mean, they were just leveled. And it was a serious pain. It was no joke what was going on. And I remember the next day watching what they posted on Facebook, their status update, and it was this brilliant and well-placed John Piper quote. And the first thing in my mind was, wow, I am really glad they're getting their arms around some good theology. That's going to be helpful for them. They're going to grow as a person. Man, I'm so glad they're reading something that's got John Piper in it. He always does such a good, that's what I'm thinking. But then the very next day, a little video clip of a prosperity teacher talking about how if you just thought differently and had a different attitude, bad things wouldn't even really come to you. And I thought, wait, what happened? A little bit of a left turn. Next day on Wednesday, I kid you not, there were some lyrics from a Kelly Clarkson song, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger, which is good for spin class, not good for miscarriages, right? And then Thursday rolls around, back to quotes, this time from Gandhi and two from Bono. Doing the best they can, you could tell. And then Friday, you could tell they just gave it up because there's just a cat video, which is the very soul of the internet anyway, isn't it? Just a bunch of cat videos. And I remember seeing this on Friday thinking, this person doesn't know what to do. They don't know what to do. You could tell they're trying. They're trying to make something fit in their head and fit in their heart. And they're not just bleeding in front of culture. Now they're borrowing from culture. They're trying to piece together some fluency for what pain and what suffering really is. And it just isn't translating very well. You've seen this. I'm telling you stuff you've already seen. Social media has just kind of become a whiteboard for how people work out their theology for everyone to see on what it means to hurt and see the carnage and deal with the shrapnel. I think if we were to nail down the predominant Western world's thought on what suffering is, take it all in and maybe make a sentence and a half out of it, it would be that suffering is ultimately just an evil interruption. An evil interruption, it could only be negative, it is totally irredeemable, it needs to be avoided at all costs, it has zero purpose to it. No purpose. It's meaningless. It's totally senseless. And I'm afraid that the church has kind of reached down and grabbed this as a working definition, even for us. And I think one of the big reasons we do this is it allows us to stay in the middle. We can stay in the middle of our universe. No worship. We don't have to. We just need to win, figure out a way to get the shrapnel out. You know, I was in Chapel Hill just this last week and I drove by the UNC campus and I literally drove right by a building that a study was done many moons back. A researcher named Christian Smith along with a bunch of fellow researchers they took a close look at the religious beliefs held by teenagers. What they basically did is they polled 3,000 local teenagers to find out what is the predominant religious belief. You would have thought it would have been Christianity. That would have been my first guess, right? Or maybe some kind of Christianity, but it wasn't. 
the closest thing that they could describe it as was moralistic therapeutic deism. Some of you have actually heard about this study. Moralistic therapeutic deism. It sounds really complicated. It's not, right? Now, before, we, before I tell you the five tenets of this religion, you need to know that this study was done in the year 2004. Do the math. That means that if you're between the ages of 25 and 32, this was done on your peers. He's likely describing you, right? Or if you lived in Chapel Hill, he might have talked to you. It might have been you. But Chapel Hill's not that much different from Knoxville, is it? Besides, our football's much better and stuff like that. This is us. Five tenets. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. That's deism. That's deism. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions, right? That's moralism. That's just being moralistic. Three, the gospel or the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. That's therapeutic. That would be the therapy part. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. That's deistic again. And then right back to moralism. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. These were such profound results that he wrote a book on it called Soul Searching. And he says in his book, God is more like a combination between a divine butler and a cosmic therapist. He is always on call, takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves, and does not become too personally involved in the process. (laughs) It's so bad, but it's so true, isn't it? It's so bad. But here's the thing. This moralistic therapeutic deism, it's not a strong enough chassis to hold up to something like a stillborn baby. How does it even, what does it even say? It has no words for it, no fluency for a tsunami. It doesn't know what to do with that. All it knows is that evil is a senseless and valueless evil hiccup. And when pain and suffering come in, there's no purpose behind it. But what do you believe? What do you believe about it? Do you believe it's senseless? You believe that it, you, you could get through life without ever having pain and suffering if you just live a certain way? Where does pain come from? Has God designed your pain? Does he hate your pain? Is it both? Right. You can see why a theology is really important here. You can see why a theology is really going to help us. Tim Keller says in that book I referenced earlier, this is a dark world. There are many ways we keep the darkness at bay, but we cannot do it forever. Eventually, the lights of our lives, our love, health, home, and work will begin to go out. And when that happens, we will need something more than what our own understanding, competence, and power can give us. That's why my goal for the next three weeks is, A, to give us a working understanding of what suffering is in our life, right? B, help us live in a gospel-formed way in the midst of suffering, in a way that we enjoy Jesus in the midst of of our suffering so that we quote unquote process better and in three and this is going to be the tough one I think but imperative for us we serve and accompany others in the church and in the city that attempt to process their pain but we live with them in such a way that they see Jesus clearly in our life and in our words that's the goal let's look at first Peter really quick I mean it'll be up on the screen go ahead and stay in the passage you're in don't turn from Romans that's going to hold a lot of the weight for us but real quickly Peter and if you're looking to study a book of the Bible that speaks very eloquently towards pain and suffering first Peter's 
pretty much the go-to book for this. But he says this in chapter four. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, because we usually are, right? As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Share. I'm seeing the word share. There's a special communion that we share with Jesus whenever we encounter suffering. That's a place that not every foot treads. When you find yourself in pain and when you find yourself in carnage and destruction and decay, that's a place Jesus understands. He is sharing that moment with you. And we were called to do it well. You see, suffering, contrary to what Disney will tell us, is not an interruption. Suffering is a calling. Hear me. I'm going to say that again. It's already rubbing on some of you. Suffering is our calling. We're called to suffer. We are called to suffer to God's glory. This is where I get that. Go back two chapters, 1 Peter 2. For this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. You see, we were called to suffer to the glory of God. Not in some weirdo, ascetic way where we only wear like one thing of clothes and all our food has no taste and we never smile. Not in some weird way like that, but in a way that we process it a little bit differently. Definitely differently than the world does. Because Christianity is very vocal on what pain is and what suffering is. The Bible teaches us that it's very real that it's overwhelming. We also see the fact that sometimes people rightfully suffer because they're dumb and they do dumb stuff, so suffering just kind of comes on them. Those are the moments where you look at it and you go, well, of course, of course that's happening to that person. Look what they just did. But also sometimes do we not see it seemingly fall disproportionately on the wrong people? What did that person do? Isn't that what we always think? We're not too different from the disciples when we think that way, by the way. Let's look back at Romans 11. If you're still there, look back at the verse 33. This is basically what Paul is saying in the 33rd verse. Lord, we can't even ascend to your level of thinking. We can't even ascend to your level of consideration. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your ways are not our ways. And this is important because we usually think that if we can't think of something, God can't either. It's weird that we do this because when it comes to power, if we notice that we are powerless, We're we're fine saying God is powerful. Of course God is powerful, even if I'm powerless. But when it comes to wisdom, we easily believe we are thinking of things that God isn't thinking of. That, That we have a better way that God hasn't even considered. But a God who is infinitely more powerful than us would also be infinitely more knowledgeable than us and infinitely more caring than us. Skip ahead to verse 34. And this is where Paul says, we can't give you advice because your ideas are so much better than ours. Verse 35, and this is one of my favorites, we cannot perform life in such a way that God owes us. Your performance and behavior cannot develop a credit line with God to help you get around pain. We do this all the time, too. We do this with others. Whenever we do something successfully 10 or 15 or 30 times and we fail once, don't we appeal to all the times that we succeeded, right? Listen, I know I left some dishes on the counter, but what you're forgetting is, is for like the last six weeks, I've never missed a day. What are we doing? We're hoping for a credit line, aren't we? Don't bring any pain or suffering to me in the form of disapproval or scolding. Officer, I never speed. You got me like on the one dumb time that I sped. I'm not even sure I'm agreeing with you that I sped, but the one time that I got pulled over. But I'm a saint the rest of the time. Don't we do this with each other? We do it with God too. 
And God says, you cannot perform in such a way that I will owe you anything. And then verse 36, Paul says that all things find their origin in him, are performed by him, and they culminate in him. But even pain? See, that's where the problem comes. That's where the problem comes. It invites a problem. Because this makes God look like he's some careless and irresponsible inflictor of pain. And this is why good theology helps us. This is why a good theology helps us, because this is where a lot of people pull the eject right here. When they see God as very senseless and very thoughtless. We're all tempted to look at this destruction here on earth and the destruction in our own lives and say, God, look what you did to me. Look what happened by your hands. But that's not true. It didn't happen by his, it happened by our hands. Evil, suffering, pain, that's in the world because of us. We get the check for that. Romans 5, 12, it says it this way, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, mankind imploded in the garden. And when we imploded in the garden, we brought the curse upon us, sin, death, decay, suffering. It all came marching in. So sure, you'll work, but that, it's not gonna be productive anymore. Like God said, it's not like the ground's just gonna yield up its produce. No, no, you'll work and it'll be productive, but it's gonna be through blood, sweat, and toil, right? And sure, you'll make families and make babies and grow, but, but you guys are gonna turn on each other. It'll be difficult to connect. Sure, you'll have bodies. They won't live forever anymore, though. It'll be like sacks or boxes kind of falling apart at the corners and at the seams. All creation groans and waits for God to fix what we have broken, what we have broken, what we have broken. And although suffering is not outside of God's control, evil is God's enemy. Jesus is furious at evil. He came to put evil in the ground. He is furious with it. So I want you to remember that yes, God is sovereign and God suffers. He is a man, it says in Isaiah, is acquainted with much grief. He's acquainted with grief. You see, Jesus defeated pain and suffering through pain and suffering. That's the reality of the cross. It was by our sin that suffering came and it was through Jesus that suffering he buried sin. So, what that means for you and me is just as Jesus found supply and comfort in the Father whenever he was sent into this place to suffer, so you and I are sent in the same way. In fact, as we see Peter call it, it is our calling. It's our calling. It's our calling to handle destruction to God's glory. Doesn't feel like much of a calling though, does it? Not one that we're excited about. I'm not excited about that being like my calling. I mean, I'd just much rather think of suffering as some wicked interruption. But this is where we fumble the ball when we do that. And when we fumble the ball, we try to control our suffering. And this is something that we all do. We try to control the level, the method, the depth, the duration of our suffering. One of the things we do is we barter. We barter with God to mitigate our suffering. Maybe if I work a little harder, I could reduce the pain. And this is where we try to put God in debt to us. You know, a few years ago, I think exactly five years ago, when Hurricane Sandy, a different hurricane, came at the U.S. and kind of raked its way right up the eastern coastline, Joel Olstein had some words for the, the survivors of Sandy. This is what he said. I know many people who watch me have been affected by Hurricane Sandy. Sure, you could be sour and bitter with no joy, but if you'll have the right attitude, let me remind you, they have no home. But if you have the right attitude, God will take what was meant for your harm and use it to your advantage. 
That storm was meant to defeat you, but God will use it to promote you. You're going to come out of it with a better house, better furniture, with better carpet, because our God is in the restoration business. Okay, here's the irony. Right now, Joel Olstein's church is packed with people who have lost everything. We're going to see how well that theology stands up, because right now it's wall-to-wall diapers and water and cots going on. There's no theology in the Bible that backs up that view. We have King David, we have the psalmist coming into pain and suffering and lamenting, suffering out loud, bringing the brutality of their honesty and how they really feel to the Lord and processing it and landing on their feet. But acting like pain doesn't hurt or that changing our attitude is gonna hack the process a little bit, it's not founded on the Bible. No, God is in the restoration business. I mean, that's, that much is true. But not to give you new carpet. Come on. New carpet? Not to give you new furniture. That's not what's happening. Yes, he's restoring, but he's restoring broken creation. He will come and upend all of shame and upend all of disease, upend addiction and depression and even death itself. That is what he's coming to restore. But this can be hard to spot. I mean, think about where in your life have you bumped into something painful, something that has promised that your next future is going to be one of suffering, and you've caught yourself thinking or saying, but I've done everything that you said, Lord. Have you ever done that or at least thought it? But God, I've done all the right things. I do my devotional every day. I write the right checks. I show up to the right thing. I do all the right stuff. And this, that thing in you is wanting to barter with God, hoping that your credit line extends So the God looks at the suffering and says, you're right, you did do those things, right? All right, no more suffering, we're good, we're good. Take a nap, it's all gonna be okay. When we're not bartering, a lot of times we try to reason. This is something that I can be guilty of often. Thinking that there has to be a silver lining in the suffering. That justice has to be served in the end of the whole story, right? There's gotta be a silver lining. Example, youth group is over, Church loads a a little van, they drive back to whatever church, there's an accident, seven kids die. Now, if we hear the story stop there, we think, that's wrong. There's got to be like, I mean, that's painful and suffering for everybody. There's got to be some justice in this. But if we hear in the story that the news of these kids and their lives really kind of provoked deeper thinking in their old high school, and seven, seven other kids became Christians, or 14, or 21 kids became Christians, then we hear a story like that and we say, okay, good, well, at least we know that something good came out of it. At least there's a silver lining. Justice was served, right? It's just demanding justice whenever we see suffering bringing discomfort to us. We also reason with ourselves that there's something to learn. Don't we do that? I know I'm supposed to learn something in this. The suffering comes, God's teaching me a lesson right now. And what's the next thought that comes whenever you realize that God's trying to teach you a lesson? How quickly can I learn it to get him off my back, right? So if he's trying to teach me a lesson, I really want to learn this lesson because I need the suffering to go away. But friends, have you not had suffering where the price tag's a little bit too heavy for whatever lesson you were going to learn out of that thing? (laughs) What, What could you learn out of losing a spouse or a limb? What lesson is so important that is worth that? You've got to be thinking through those things. I do. It can't strictly be educational. It's got to be more than that. 
I think sometimes we reason on that way because it allows us to guard the image of God in our minds. We kind of shrink them a little bit and we make them think like us. It's got to be justice, got to be a silver lining. Well, maybe, maybe not a silver lining in this lifetime. God gives and he takes away. And sometimes when we're done bartering and we're done reasoning, we can bail. But we just don't love and trust God anymore. This is the anthem for legions of people. Well, God does that, done with God. How about that? I mean, if God does that sort of thing, then I don't want anything to do with God. And, I, and let me make myself clear. I don't think this is for all the dirty people that aren't here in the morning, that aren't here on Sunday, the other 84% of Knoxville. I think this is just as true for the 16% that are sitting in seats this morning in some various service. We could serve, we could follow, but we all have this wound that we think that God inflicted, so we kind of cover it, and then we lean away from him. No intimacy. We think he's going to hurt us again, right? That's us. I think it's all of us. Even listening to a sermon like this might be pushing you to the very edges. And for the rest of us, being fluent with a person that is struggling, that's really hard, isn't it? Because we just don't know what to say. When you watch someone suffer in pain like that, we just don't know what to say. And now I'm borrowing from a sermon that we will talk about because there is some very high missional application to suffering. But sometimes the best thing you can do when you're around somebody that is really taking a pop, sometimes the best thing you can do is just shut up and just hug and cry and just be there. I mean, when you look through the story of Job where his friends really went wrong as they started talking, <laughs> it was when they started talking that it got really weird. But when they were just silent, I think they were probably better friends. But as suffering goes on, it does require a fluency. Once they've gotten past the sting and the immediate cold water and the crying is not happening as much, there, there is required upon the church of God a fluency to help them see Jesus in the midst of suffering because that's what people do when they love each other. Right? And when we don't do these things, we medicate. I need fill in the blank to get through the day because the pain is just too great. I mean, we have an opioid crisis that is ripping through Appalachia, ripping through our part of the South. Why? Because life just isn't worth living for a lot of people. It's not worth living unless they can get that thing, which means they will do anything to get that thing. But if, what if we were to just bring it home a little bit more and say it's not because I don't know if anyone in here is on opioids. Maybe some of you are. But what if you go home and you drain half a bottle of Trader Joe's wine because it makes your day 7% better. Is that not the same thing, just to a different degree? I need this, the two and a half glasses, the four glasses, the six glasses of wine, because my work day was hard and my evening's not worth having unless I can medicate it some way. And listen, medication, it does not have to be a substance. People work too. Work works. We can overwork as a medication to get through the pain. And anytime someone touches it in us, it feels like they're touching life itself. That's why some of you, you know, you pull back a nub whenever you reach into one of your friend's lives and you say, hey, it looks like you're kind of doing a lot of this to get rid of the pain in your life. And they flip their lid on you. It's because you've touched their very life. You've threatened something. And their voice to you is, are you going to take that from me too? God has taken so much from me. You're going to take that from me? Why don't you take that from me? I even think isolation is a bit of a medication. I've seen people isolate. 
And this is why I think people isolate whenever they're in the midst of suffering and why it's a medication for them. Because to be alone in their own head, they, they, they can just think about it over and over again. But to be in front of others, you have to fake a smile and try to do the best you can to explain something. Right? An, another freebie, totally not anything to do with this sermon, but whenever you go and visit someone in a hospital, don't ask them how they're doing. Don't ask them how they're processing it. Because you're, you're putting a burden on them to explain to you how exactly they're doing that theologically. And they might not even be ready for that. Just be there. Just be there. Isolation works. That's why there's people not here. That's why there's people not in other churches. I mean, look around. Look in your living rooms. Are there people that aren't around anymore like they used to be? Usually when we make phone calls as pastors to people who we just don't see anymore, we pretty much anticipate that something went wrong in their life, some sort of pain and suffering, because isolation proves to be such a heavy medication. So if you don't see somebody, call them. It won't, it won't be easy. It won't be easy. Check on them. These are things that we do. The thing where I'd like to lead us is to a place of worship, where we're not medicating, bartering, leaving, but we're worshiping because God rescues us through suffering. Because even the cross is from him and through him and even to him. And suffering is the very door that Jesus himself walked through to recover all of us. And the cross was actually the very worst thing that we could do. The cross was the worst thing that we could do to Jesus. Robert Murray McShane has one of the most helpful descriptions of what Jesus went through on the cross as regards his proximity to his father. And he says this. He says, he was without any comforts of God, no feeling that God loved him, no feeling that God pitied him, no feeling that God supported him. God was his son before. Now that son has become all darkness. He was without God. He was as if he had no God. All that God had been to him was taken from him now. He was Godless, deprived of his God. Ah, oh, this is the hell that Christ suffered. The ocean of Christ's suffering is unfathomable. He is sovereign, and he is suffering. And why did he do all of that? For me. And he did it for you. And he did it to recover us and redeem us from ultimate suffering. So what does this do? It takes me out of the middle. It provokes a repentance because I could become awfully self-centered in the middle of my pain. I think we all can. We could be very self-centered when it comes to our suffering and we can accuse God of being cruel. And sure, it's time to lament. And I'm looking forward to talking about what that means, to lament. There's a good theology on that. It's very helpful. I need to lament and bring my honesty to the Lord. I need to process it. I've got questions. And it might take a while. But part of this processing looks like repentance and worship. Friends, listen, I don't know all the answers behind why God allows evil and suffering to continue in every instance or why it's so random, but at least I know what it's not. At least I know what suffering is not. It cannot be that God does not love us. It cannot be that he doesn't care. It cannot be that he is being spiteful or cruel. And it definitely can't be because he doesn't know how much pain really hurts us. It can't be any of those things. Because he's committed to us. He's committed enough to come down and take the very suffering that we created by our own hands. So I know that this is only half of the answer, but I think it's the most important part. I know that this is only half of the explanation, but I think it's the half that's helpful for us as Christians. Because Christianity does not offer some total summary explanation behind every instance of suffering. It doesn't do that. But it does claim to hold the final answer to all suffering that we know. 
that we know. It will come when Jesus comes back. And listen, I know that sounds trite, but you need to hear me when I say this. When Jesus comes back, it will be satisfying to all. Have you lost kids? When you see Jesus, you will be satisfied in him. Do you have cancer? When Jesus comes back, you will be permanently satisfied. Go ahead and stand with me. I'm going to read this to you. And point your gaze to Jesus as we enter worship because satisfaction is not going to come by a new attitude and new carpet. That's not going to work, but by a new king and a new city. Citizens and Saints is a band that they had a song out not too long ago called Madness. I'm going to read it to you, read it over you, and then we're going to go into prayer. It starts off this way. This world so cruel down to its core. I'm drowning in doubt like never before. I thought with time the wounds would all heal, but still there's days when they're all that I feel. Yet the more I live, the more I see, the hurt I have isn't only on me. You can feel it too and know what I need, an anchored rock in a wicked sea. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you that you are an anchored rock in a wicked sea. I thank you not just because you're sovereign and nothing escapes your gaze, but because you're suffering and you stand with me whenever I struggle. That the tears that we cry, you've cried along with us. That there's not a painful moment where our heart feels like it's just going to give out, that you've not felt it as well. Yes, you are otherworldly, and you are right next to us all at the same time. I thank you that your cross has proven that. Your cross has proven that. You are an anchor inside of a wicked sea. And Lord, I, I cannot even pretend to know the depth of all the suffering and the pain in this room. I couldn't even, Lord, I know that there's pains and sufferings that we don't even think of anymore because it's just become normal to us. But I do trust you, and I trust that when you come back, you will stop all tears, and the madness will stop, and the sadness will stop, and the addictions will stop, the offenses will stop. We will stop leaning away from you as we cover our wounds, and we will lean towards you as you become the light before us. You're preparing such a beautiful place for us. And I know and I trust that we will all be satisfied. Lord, I know that you're also driving us to repent for being the self or the the center of our own universe, the center of our own suffering. It feels odd to say that those who feel hurt need to repent. That feels like an odd thing to say, but I know it's important. Lord, that whenever we put ourselves in the center and you on the periphery, that is a sin. That is a sin that we are guilty of. And Lord, whenever we worship our own remedies instead of worshiping you, Lord, that is a sin. That's idol worship. And it's so easy to slip into both of these in the midst of our pain and suffering. So Lord, I pray that you would be with us as we sing, that you would be with us as we take communion, that very emblem of your ultimate suffering with blood and with broken body. And we would do it as a worship to you. And Lord, I pray for those in here who are far from you, who would not be a Christian, who have never understood how to suffer, and maybe they're just now understanding what suffering really looks like, that you would renovate their hearts, that you would be a God of restoration for them, that you would redeem them from evil, that you would redeem them from worshiping themselves and from being the center. Lord, you're so good. And as we worship you, we don't worship something common but otherworldly. You are our beyond God. 
and yet you are very near. Love you, and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.